the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Anton Karras, third man, um, and uh, Julian Assange at an anti-war demonstration back, back in 2010. Um, and uh, a lot of the protesters, the photos during the third man, uh, who have been organizing and have been on the streets from day one, and are really the heart and soul of this movement and uh, so necessarily needed. It's like uh, my good friend, the late Grandpa Al Lewis used to say from the Munsters, uh, you got to get the asses of the masses on the street. It's not an intellectual battle. It's uh, a street battle here. And you know, I'm not talking about violence. I mean, just organizing and getting people out there and uh, trying to sway public opinion. Uh, I am Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Or I can't believe it, uh, we hit the Jack Benny age, 39. This is number 39, episode 39. And I'm uh, way up here in the Adirondacks, you know, burning up. I mean, just really sweating my ass off today. There's no air conditioning. I'm out in the greenhouse, but, but that's where I am. Um, I, I, we have a great show today. You know, the Senate um, Intel Committee, which I took the fifth as it did with the House Intel Committee and didn't testify. Um, I testified uh, during the uh, trial because uh, I would have gone to jail. But uh, at any rate, um, we are going to talk about that because once again, they conclude that Roger Stone had something to do uh, with WikiLeaks and Jerome Corsi. That's, that's the salient piece. Uh, to me, even though it's a 995-page report. Uh, but we're going to get into that with someone who's been a critic of the Russiagate investigation, and that is uh, Aaron Mate from uh, Gray Zone News, the Gray Zone Project, and uh, from uh, the really wonderful uh, internet show um, podcast called uh, Pushback. So Aaron Mate will be joining us. Uh, he's been on this for a long time. And uh, but, but before we bring him on, today is uh, here, tonight's the uh, opening of the Republican convention. Uh, you saw the Democratic convention last week. Uh, but today, to me, is a special day 
it's uh, August 24th, and it's the anniversary, the 210-year anniversary of the Reverend Theodore Parker. You know, last week we did that show on uh, Jean-Paul Marat, who was the unsung hero of the uh, French Revolution. Well, the same thing could be said about uh, Theodore Parker. Uh, he is the unsung hero of the abolition movement in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. He was he was John Brown's, one, one of the six, of the secret six that supported John Brown, Reverend Parker. Uh, I've read a lot about him, and I've spoken to Cornell West a lot about him. Uh, and we'll do a, a tribute to the late, the late, of course, he died in 1865, right after the war, I think, the Civil War. Uh, but a great man, Theodore Parker, buried in the Protestant cemetery in Florence, along with another uh, great unsung hero of the abolition movement, and that is Richard Hildreth. They were contemporaries, but neither one are really well known. It's baffling. We all know Frederick Douglass, and we all know uh, William uh, Lloyd Garrison, but very few people know uh, about Parker's role. And I, I would suggest you look him up, uh, Reverend Theodore Parker and, and uh, Richard Hildreth. I have all of his books that were written late. He wrote, wrote the very first by the way, the very first uh, anti-slavery novel before Harriet Beecher Stowe. It was called uh, uh, Archie Moore, or The White Slave. Richard Hildreth, look him up. At any rate, so uh, let's get into this. Um, I've spent too much time here in the opening, but I, I did want to uh, tip my hat to those two guys, actually, Hildreth and, and Theodore Parker on this birthday. And we're going to come right back with um, the great uh, Aaron Monte, who's uh, really doing a great work out there. Uh, but first, we're going to go to, um, let's play a, a minute or so of uh, Nina Simone. And um, we've played this before, but it's, it's perfect. You know, this is the season of Black Lives Matter. Hopefully, it's the decade and the century of Black Lives Matter. We'll be right back with Aaron Monte. Ain't got no home. Ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no love, ain't got no faith. I ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother. Ain't got no father, ain't got no brother, ain't got no children, ain't got no aunts, ain't got no uncles, ain't got no love, ain't got no mind. I ain't got no country, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no friends. Simone. Um, this is Randy Critical, Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, 
numero 39. This is our 39th episode, and each week, uh, Solange's situation seems to get worse. Each week that I do this, maybe I'm bad luck. Uh, but as, um, as I said, we are now joined by, uh, we are enjoying now, as I said, uh, Aaron Mate, a great investigative uh, journalist uh, with the Gray Zone. Also, uh, with Pushback, uh, a really wonderful podcast. Uh, you can get, you go to his, you go to Twitter, Aaron J. Mate, and it's the very first penned tweet is uh, Pushback. And it's a great show. And welcome, uh, Aaron Mate, back to this show. Great to be back, Randy. Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Well, I like it because you have a sense of humor. And, uh, you know, this is not a formal environment. I'm way up in the Adirondacks. I'm burning my ass off up here. You look like you're, uh, you're relaxed. and you're, are, are you, like, kind of sequestered and staying out of the streets of New York? I walk around my neighborhood a little bit, but uh, not much going on. So, you know, yeah, I guess relatively I am pretty sequestered. Well, you know, I was there like three or four weeks ago, and I came down for a day. I got robbed. Uh, the car got broken into, and uh, and the next day I actually went to a place I'd been dying to go for five months, and that's Katz's uh, Deli on Houston Street. Yeah. And uh, boy, what a long line—not a long line, but what a—you have to go through this rigmarole to pay, get a ticket, all the. Um, I got to tell you something. I wasn't too thrilled with the corned beef. Um, you're probably vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to be vegetarian, but I, if I was a cat, I would try. I mean, I, I love, I love deli food. So I, if I ever I make it back to the city and I found myself a cat, I would definitely have it. But I'm right. sorry to hear well, you, you would eat um, corned beef or a pastrami while reading the latest Senate Intel report, right? What a nice transition, because that's why you're here today, is to talk about, and you've been such a critic of the whole Russia gate, whether it be the Senate Intel, uh, uh, the uh, House Intel, and the Mueller investigation. You've been a consistent, uh, very cogent critic of all of them from the very get-go. Uh, what did you make of, of the Senate Intel report, or, or what you have read of it so i haven't finished the whole thing but i've read a lot of it and there are people who have been pushing the russiagate thing for the last four years who are celebrating the senate intel report because they see it as a validation of the conspiracy theories that they've latched onto that trump campaign and russia conspired that russia waged the sweeping systematic interference operation and they see this report as a validation of that. They're missing a few things though. First of all, report doesn't say what I think they think it says. And also the fact that there's a Republican imprimatur on this report doesn't actually mean that much because there are aspects of Russiagate that are bipartisan. It is bipartisan to fear monger about Russia and to make people think that Americans are so vulnerable that they could be duped by Russian social media ads or stolen emails. And it's also bipartisan to attack WikiLeaks. Mike Pompeo declared WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence uh, organization. 
when Robert Mueller, the symbol of the resistance, was asked whether he agreed with that at his testimony last July, he said absolutely, he didn't hesitate to agree. So there is a complete bipartisan convergence around attacking WikiLeaks. And this report spent a lot of energy to do that, to falsely portray WikiLeaks as an asset of Russian intelligence, to suggest as if there was some cooperation behind the scenes between Julian Assange and Russian intelligence. And on that front, there is no daylight between you know, corporate Democrats and Republicans. And this report tries to advance that in a long way. So the celebrations of this report stem in part because it's actually just continuing the parts of Russiagate that are bipartisan, where there's no dispute between the two sides. You know what, what I want to focus on the Russia, uh, the Assange uh, connection. Uh, you tweeted out, and so did I, uh, Chris Hayes. And, and these, Chris Hayes and Ari Melber both work for, used to work for the nation, used to write for the nation. And so, and you've written for the nation. And uh, I, I really find it um, in Congress that they would fall for the bait, not only fall for it, but champion this notion that Roger Stone and Jerome, Jerome Corsi somehow got WikiLeaks, they had the info and gave the orders when to release it. They both, and we're going to play a clip. This is uh, Chris Hayes uh, the other day pushing that outrageous, ridiculous theory. On the most faithful day of the campaign, October 7th, 2016, the Access Hollywood tape drops, and then that same day, WikiLeaks releases the Russian hacked emails of Clinton's campaign chief, John Podesta. It's on a Friday, it happens. And according to the Senate report, this was no coincidence. Of course, it didn't look like one at the time. Trump's dirty trickster, Roger Stone, told his pal, conspiracy theorist Jerome Corsi, to make it happen. Quote, Corsi recalled learning from Stone the Access Hollywood tape would be coming out. That's before it actually publishes. And that Stone wanted the Podesta stuff to balance the news cycle. According to Corsi, Stone also told him to have WikiLeaks drop the Podesta emails immediately. In other words, the whole thing is what it looked like all along. Okay, so were you shocked when you saw Chris Hayes say that? I'm not shocked. First of all, I don't think Chris actually believes it. When you are an anchor on MSNBC, you're not, you're not being a journalist. You're being a news personality. And you have to follow a certain script. You just do. That's why they haven't interviewed a single skeptic of Russiagate in the last four years. It's not because they don't, they don't know that we exist. It's because they simply are not allowed to put on air anything that undermines the narrative that they've latched onto um, to, you know, for many reasons, to boost their ratings and also because that was the dominant narrative of the DNC and MSNBC and DNC and the DNC are in perfect lockstep. So, you know, I wasn't surprised to see Chris do that. I think he's a very bright person, but you know, he wrote a book a long time ago called Twilight of the Elites. He talked about a phenomenon called cognitive capture, that when you immerse yourself in elite culture, you, you pick up an understanding that to stay in elite culture and stay within its confines and to reap the benefits from it, there are just certain narratives that you have to go along with. And you adopt, and accordingly, you just, without even thinking about it, you adopt their way of thinking. And Russiagate is like the... It's the scripture for the liberal elite. You just have to believe that the reason we have Donald Trump 
is not just because of Russia and Russian interference, quote unquote, but because Donald Trump and Russia somehow secretly conspired. And this Roger Stone WikiLeaks thing, as farcical as it is, and no matter how many times people like you, who are a central player in this conspiracy theory, have debunked it, they can't hear it. So no wonder they keep pretending as if there's something to it. Yes, I was on uh, Melbourne's show four or five times, and I said repeatedly that Stone was hoodwinking. I mean, th the bottom line is Stone hoodwinked Trump, and Jerome, Jerome Corsi hoodwinked Stone. That's what happened there. But for them to take it, take this guy who's a lunatic, a you know, conspiracy nut, this guy, and that's how they used to characterize him, Corsi. Uh, and suddenly he's got credibility that he tipped off uh, Roger Stone, Stone told him on that date, and the Access Hollywood comes out, Stone says, tell him to drop it, and they're pushing that. Not only him, but not only Hayes in Melbourne, but also, and this is from the other day, uh, Friday night, uh, this is uh, Bill Maher uh, interviewing Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone organized the WikiLeaks dump 30 minutes after the Hollywood, the Access Hollywood tape came out. You, you can't really think that a Russian president, the one that's in there now, should be able to ratfuck our elections like this, can you? Oh, Bill, I think you're, I, I, I know you long, too long. I think you're sophisticated enough to know that, well, you have to question everything that comes out of our intelligence agencies. If you haven't learned that by now, uh, you've got a long way to go still. Because, so you think, so they're uh, the lying? Intelligence agencies are not reliable. They've been screwing with America ever going back to Vietnam War, going back to uh, the Iraq Wars, the uh, Afghan war, Afghani Wars. It's very hard to find out the truth from them. And everything they published, the rumors on, and all the, the anonymous sources, the think tanks, the anti-Russian, it all adds up into this ball of wax that becomes enormous. And, and then you, and they have people like you who are skeptical generally, believing it. I would really triple check everything, every one of those sources. I, I, what I read of it wasn't that specific. It wasn't that specific. So there you go. You saw that. You tweeted about that. Uh, what do you make of uh, Bill Maher? He's uh, kind of a mixed bag, isn't he? Well, you know, let's note the irony here of you see, you have Jerome Corsi the exponent of the birther conspiracy theory that people like Chris Hayes and Ari Melber and Bill Maher rightfully mocked for a long time, now being a part of a conspiracy theory that they themselves are promoting. And that is as ridiculous, this idea that the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks secretly conspired through a far-right conspiracy theorist birther like Jerome Corsi. So it's nuts. And the same thing with Roger Stone. Roger Stone had no inside access to WikiLeaks. He made some comments early on that he did, pretend that he did, but he, he quickly recanted and said he was basically uh, blustering. Right. Uh, but they just, they simply ignore all that. They simply ignore all that. And it's, you know, it's of interest here, I guess, to study as to how liberal elite culture works, where just, you know, it's not that different from QAnon where you have conspiracy theories that are convenient for very key reasons. They essentially reinforce the privilege of, of the people who are expounding them, uh, who are extolling them. And so 
they don't question them and they become, it's like, it becomes as if the air you breathe, it becomes something as ridiculous as Roger Stone secretly coordinating with WikiLeaks just becomes true no matter the logic of it and the, all the countervailing evidence that's come out over the last four years, including by the way, during Roger Stone's trial, when witnesses, including yourself, made very clear that despite Stone initially claiming that he had a back channel to WikiLeaks, that he had absolutely none. But they just ignore all that. Right. Well, you know, I was the fault. I, I think that he did have these conversations with Corsi. There's no question that he did. They're all on emails. Corsi sold him a bill of goods, and then he sold Trump a bill of goods. That's it. He was disaffected from the campaign in 2015, and he was really, you know, scratching his way back into the campaign by saying that, it, and you know, WikiLeaks, they let it be known that things were coming out way back, you know, way back in June. They said that Julian said it then, and he said it again in August, that there was gonna be more material coming. So Stone wanted to insinuate himself into the picture. He had done that in 2000, as if he was the guy with the Brooks brother riot uh, down in Dade County, as if he was in charge of it. And there's absolutely no proof of it. He actually made it up. And he's kind of a showman, you know what I mean? Um, but here's the big problem with, with uh, connecting Corsi and Stone to Assange. This hurts Assange. This absolutely more than it being connected to the Russians, but it hurts him because Stone is so radioactive. Corsi's radioactive to a lesser degree. And so we, we've got liberals now thinking that Stone still had some kind of connection with Assange and it makes him look bad. Do you agree with of course, yeah, and that's why they do it because they want to. There again is bipartisan interest in demonizing Assange. This is what they've been doing for a long time, but it's really picked up after 2016. And so this is a way to do that to portray, you know. So they try to link Assange to Russia. They also try to link him to a far right conspiracy theorist, Jerome Corsi, and another conspiracy theorist, Roger Stone to portray uh, Assange as like a tool and an asset of the right and the Russians. When it's, people should just stop and think, why would a Julian Assange speak to Jerome Corsi, a birther? Like, it just, on the face of it, like this is a secretive guy who is responsible for releasing some of the most damning revelations in modern history. Why would he be speaking to a birther like Jerome Corsi? It, just, it doesn't make any sense, but they suspend that. And look, he also, you know, uh, you and Stone also communicated. We've talked about this before. You wrote Stone some text, making him, you know, making him believe that you knew something, but that wasn't true also. You subsequently explained what happened, that you were, he was pressuring you a lot, and also you were drinking during one of your exchanges, right? Yes, but also I had uh, put on Facebook before I told him that something was coming because I was in. Uh, London to see my friend Barry Crimmins. I tried to see Assange. I had this letter from Bertolt Reimers, the uh, general manager of WBAI, to try to induce him to do an ISDN radio show for WBAI. That was why I went to the embassy. And outside the embassy, there was a guy there. I was so nervous going in there. Who was there with the earplug the whole time. Just, you can see the picture of him standing out. And then when I, I went in, I dropped off the letter. I dropped it off. I never saw anybody. I saw an arm come out. It was right out of the Adams family, this uh, uh, character called Thing, where you just see the arm, and that was it. 
and, and like beelined out of there. I, I went to Herod's and I was followed. There were some people that followed me. I got on the subway and, and, and Knightbridge and went back to my room. Uh, but uh, I, I concluded that there was something based on that. And I put it on Facebook, something big is coming, is coming. And I sent it to Stone. I sent it to like six or seven people. I deduced by the elements and he would not see me. Uh, Assange. So I figured he probably, and he was, turned out he was busy collating uh, these uh, these Podesta emails to send out. Oh, I see. Okay. So, you know, it wasn't just bluster on your part. You actually had a premonition that something was happening based on the activity around the embassy. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just that you, you know, as we've talked about, got drunk at Heathrow and they took a plane back and were sending him stuff. But that, it wasn't actually just that. It was also that, okay, so that's interesting. Now, I put that on Facebook, by the way. I actually put that on Facebook, uh, that uh, photo, standing yeah. outside. I had a box full of Nespresso, and, and I took a picture. I said, take a look. Something big is coming up, you know? Yeah. And Chris Hayes called that the smoking selfie. Yes, I understand it way back then, and he didn't apologize. He also said a, a uh, kind of a lefty. I mean, I'll put my record up against him, my activity since I was 25 years up until now, 40 years of, of political act, uh, activism up against his. For him to uh, degrade me like that and say I'm kind of a lefty, you know, was uh, a shot. I, mean, that, I didn't know that. I mean, look, anybody who pushes Russiagate, especially after four years of it being debunked and it being so detrimental to the left, has to turn in their lefty card. It's a chauvinist conspiracy theory that has pushed the Democratic Party even more to the right because it's made resistance to Trump synonymous with encouraging him to be more confrontational towards Russia. It's encouraged veneration of the CIA and the FBI. And it's distracted us from all the real problems at home. And it was used even to undermine Bernie Sanders when he was doing well during the primary. So what happened? Intelligence officials leaked some information that all of a sudden Russia wanted Bernie to win. That was uh, on the eve of, of the Nevada caucus, and it hurt him. He had, he had to sort of uh, respond to the fact that Putin was favoring him. It was used against him. So any lefty who promoted it ceaselessly, despite the evidence and despite the damage it did, can no longer call themselves a lefty, and certainly has no right to question the leftist credentials of anybody else, especially you, Randy. And, you know, the... Um, the uh, and on that trip, so you've seen Assange before. You met with him before, but on that trip, you actually didn't get to see him. No, I, I, had, I didn't see him until the following year. I saw him one year later. I, I interviewed him on August 25th. I asked him about the allegations that Stone had made, that he had been in direct contact. He uh, disabused me of that notion. And, uh, and then I spent the next three or four, five, six months trying to get him back on right? Because it was hot for the show. And then he called me up uh, in, uh, I think it was April, April of 2017. He was upset with uh, the way he was portrayed by Democracy Now! He got ambushed by um, Alan Nairn. And, I uh, I and, and, and it was really unfair. They, they blamed him. They fell for the bait, both yeah. Amy and uh, I'm sure she's reconsidered that. Uh, idea. Uh, I, I don't think she has, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm just telling you that he, he the next day, I got to gave a fair hearing on that one and uh, it put him on. 
but uh, that was that was a a pretty low blow to uh, bring on someone that she did that day who was there to ambush uh, Mr. Assange, who that has was, already had already spent seven years in that embassy. Yeah, that was strange. I you know at the time I didn't quite pick up on how disrespectful it was, but then I but looking back on the interview now, you look at it basically. Amy had Alan there, and, and Alan's not a host of the show, but basically she brought him on to be a host for that segment. And his sole purpose was to try to like nail Assange and get him to admit that he was a part of a Russian operation to elect Trump. And he yeah, wasn't they, really interested in finding out the truth of what actually happened. And it was, and Alan Marin is someone who I really respect. He's done. I do too. But I'm, I, he was not aware. Assange was not aware that Alan Nairn was going to be part of that. But that's not what this is about. He used to work at Democracy Now. I have a lot of friends of mine uh, that work there. Uh, and uh, just the, the one last question on, on this Russiagate. Uh, the, the people that are pushing it, is it because uh, th there are some elements to these investigations that maybe you could uh, underscore that are true. I mean, there. I mean, not, not everything is uh, a complete fantasy, right? I mean, let's say that there was attempts by Trump to squash investigation, right? Process. Yeah, uh, the obstruction angle is at least there's something there. Although, if you know, look to me, it's, it's a secondary issue because the question that Russiagate begins with is whether there's a conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And so as the Mueller report even points out, to accuse him of obstruction is tricky because you have to take into consideration that he was not guilty of the underlying crime. So if he's not guilty of, of a conspiracy with Russia, is he then within his rights to take steps to stop an investigation that he feels is not just unfounded, but is interfering with his duties as president? So to me, it's like a, there's a legal, it's like a, it's, it's good for a legal seminar. If I was in law school, I'd find this riveting. But I think the obstruction thing really is what Democrats latched onto after they realized that their conspiracy theory about Trump and Russia colluding had no legs. And so, you know, the obstruction thing is important, but the fact is Robert Mueller himself didn't make a call. And he claimed it's because you can't indict a sitting president. But, you know, the argument, counter argument to that is that, well, he still could have determined whether or not Trump is uh, a committed obstruction or not and left it up to the attorney general to decide whether to indict based on the guidelines. So to me, it gets, into, it gets very academic and cerebral. And what's important to me are the questions of a conspiracy, which was a farce and which was actually uh, pushed because of duplicitous behavior by intelligence officials. Um, then there's the angle about Russian social media interference, which is a joke. Uh, IRA. The IRA, if you look at it, these ads were mostly after the election. Most of them had nothing to do with the election. And most of them were juvenile, you know, these dumb memes that nobody saw. And if you saw them, they would, you would laugh at them and wouldn't even see them. And the idea that these memes could influence the single voter is ridiculous. And it's contemptuous. It shows contempt on the part of the elites that they can seriously think that these dumb memes on social media uh, could possibly sway someone to not vote for Hillary Clinton. It just, it, it's, a, it's a transparent excuse to deflect responsibility for the failed neoliberals who lost 2016 and to gin up some panic about fear-mongering about Russian interference. The only legitimate aspect is, is this. 
somebody did steal the Democratic Party emails. Intelligence agencies say it was Russia. I've talked a lot about, I've written about how I don't know, I don't claim to know one way or the other. All I know is that the case that Mueller has presented has a lot of very glaring holes. First of all, his timeline makes no sense. He claims that Assange spoke to and got the emails of the Democratic Party from, from Russian cutouts after he already announced publicly that he had them. So his timeline, Mueller's timeline doesn't make any sense because how is Assange going to say he has these emails, but then after that only first make contact and receive uh, the emails from the source who Mueller he, claims he got it from, which is this Russian cutout boost for 2.0. So that alone doesn't make sense. There's many other things about the case that I think don't add up. But look, it's possible Russia did it. I've always said that. And that should be investigated. But what this has grown into, this four-year-long, insane, paranoid, uh, quote-unquote, scandal about Russia being compared, Russian trolls being compared to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, it's a joke. And this whole thing about a conspiracy is a joke. So even the aspects of it that are, um, that are um, worthy of investigation have been blown way out of proportion. And look, one key, one, uh, another key hole in, a, in Mueller's investigation is that he never spoke to Assange and never tried to speak to Assange. And, you know, there's an example of, of this. The Senate report, they say that they sought in a, a in the, the Senate report says that they sought an interview with Assange. And then they say, we were not able to obtain one. What they leave out is that Assange's lawyer responded and said, okay, how can we work out the details? And the Senate itself did not respond to that. So both Mueller and the Senate Intel Committee, who each accuse Assange of working with Russia, essentially, were not interested in speaking with Assange. And in the case of the Senate Intel Committee, they go so far as to duplicitously uh, suggest that Assange rebuffed them, when, when it, in fact it was them who, who rebuffed Assange and didn't want to hear from him. So the question is, why would you not want to speak to the person who is at the heart of this entire thing, the, the publication of the stolen emails. It raises some obvious, some obvious questions. And let me ask you, Randy, I mean, did Assange ever say to you anything about the source of the emails? Did he ever talk to you about his frustration, which he's talked about in public, public before, about the fact that this was being blamed on Russia when he says, in fact, that Russia was not his source? Uh, yes, he uh, always said Russia, no state actor. I don't know where the source came from, uh, but he certainly made it clear that uh, it certainly wasn't the Russian government. And there was a lot of frustration, a lot of conversations with him uh, on, on this, and it was very frustrating. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, the Senate Intel Committee and Mueller not interviewing Assange, well, I, I will say this. I, I actually was invited by Adam Schiff after the White House Correspondence Center that I got booted out of uh, 2018 invited me to their office. I went to the office in DC uh, to, to, to chat with him and his staff. And uh, I said that Assange would lie. I said, there was nothing. I told him that Stone made the whole thing up, right? I said, why don't you interview Julian Assange, right? He'll he, he go interview him. 
So I went on Aaron Melvers told that story a week later, and then they he this is breaking news. Well, it wasn't breaking news, but he said it. And so um he got a comment from Schiff. He says, We'll interview Mr. Assange when he's in custody. So he kind of tele telegraphed back then that uh, they, there was this secret indictment way back in 2018. So you're right, they never had any interest and it's really, uh, and they never, here's the point, no one ever indicted, Moa didn't indict him for this. Moa no. did not indict Assange uh, for being part of this conspiracy. So there you go, right? That's, that is Let really me right. ask you one question, one question before you, so do you think, that's a really right, go ahead, answer that. That's a critical point. Mueller indicted uh, Russian GRU officers of hacking the material. So based on that, he's not hacking Julian Assange for uh, receiving the material supposedly from Russia and releasing it. That's a, that, I hadn't thought about that, but that's very curious that Assange was not indicted. Right, he wasn't indicted. So getting back, uh, is it possible uh, the Russian conspiracy goes to this, that it was yes or no answer. Was it Russia? Was it the GRU? Was it the IRA that sent Hillary Clinton's campaign a map that excluded Michigan and Wisconsin? Is that what they did? The answer is no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So but what's funny, but what's funny is that Hillary Clinton has had the gall to say that Russian social media ads depressed the black vote in Michigan. She's literally said that. She said that Russian social media ads were we're partly responsible for a lower black turnout for her in Michigan. It's so ridiculous. And it shows why we have this Russian interference panic, because it excuses the failures of neoliberal Democrats. And they've had ample help from the media on MSNBC and elsewhere and going along with it and promoting them. Yeah, she also uh, doesn't uh, acknowledge the fact that she's responsible responsible for Bertha Cesaris' death in Honduras and many other uh, activists uh, in Honduras. Uh, we're going to take a quick break uh, here and talk about the Democrats and Republicans in the election. Uh, can you stick around for, you know, a second a segment here? All right. We're going to play. Uh, this is um, this is Leonard Cohen, and uh, we'll be right back in uh, just one minute. All right. Great tune. Live. Leonard Cohen. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guy lost. Everybody knows that the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain line. Everybody got this broken feeling. Like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem roll. Everybody knows. All right. 
Leonard Cohen, uh, may he rest in peace. What a, what a great talent uh, that uh, individual was. We are talking with, continuing our discussion of Randy Craco, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 39. Uh, our second uh, chat with, maybe our third, I'm not sure, with Aaron Mate, who um, uh, is with the Gray Zone. Uh, it's, it's Gray Zone News uh, at Twitter. Aaron J. Mate at Twitter. Uh, and pushback. How do people uh, get uh, pushback other than going to your Twitter feed and seeing it pinned at the top? Just go to pushbackshow.com or The Gray Zone, and that will take you there. And are you still writing for The Nation? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Not, not as frequently as I did during the height of Russiagate. But yeah, when I have something I think is really worthwhile to say, and then when they, when they want to print it, then yeah. Yeah, well, you've won a lot of awards for your work uh, discussing uh, or talking. I won, I won an award, but but one is better than none. It was all right. That's more than I've received. All right, <laughs> for my writing, never got anything for my writing. Uh, all right, so let's move on to. I, I guess you saw the convention uh, last week, uh, and what did you make of it, uh, Aaron Mate? Look, it's a very depressing time. You have a Democratic Party that has gone even more to the right than it was in 2016, I think, as a result directly of this Russiagate stuff, which, as we talked about earlier, has centered the resistance, quote unquote, around being a cold warrior, uh, encouraging militarism, ignoring all of Trump's awful policies around the world. I mean, how often do we talk about Trump's murderous sanctions on Venezuela, Iran, Syria, Cuba. I mean, we don't even talk about that on the left here anymore. We just kind of accept all of that as a fait accompli and Democrats in Congress pose no resistance to it whatsoever. We're entirely focused on Russiagate panic and domestic issues. And I mean, there's been some positive movement, I guess, on the domestic front, but on foreign policy, it's gone even more to the right. And the Democratic Convention put that on display where you have Colin Powell, addressing the convention, you know, the public salesperson for the Iraq war, now welcomed as a credible speaker at the Democratic Party convention in, in 2020. Uh, John Kasich, other Republicans, you had a tribute video to John McCain, uh, one of the most fanatic regime change advocates in the US Senate over the last uh, many years. So um, it was depressing. And it, it, I think it's a hard time, and it's hard to see uh, so little space for progressives. And it's heartbreaking for me as someone who really wanted Bernie Sanders to win to see how kind of quickly that whole movement collapsed and Bernie's kind of receded. I mean, I don't want to be totally. For, wait a second. Do you think this country's progressive enough to elect Bernie Sanders? I do, actually. I do, because what are his positions? They're not, I mean, look. To me, uh, Bernie's not nearly left enough. You know, uh, what are his positions? Universal health care, free public education. In every other industrialized country, those are a reality. No one calls those a far left position. You know, it's, you know, like in Canada, where I'm from, everybody has health care and nobody considers that a left wing thing. It's just, it's just how a civilized society that can afford it and has the resources works. You know, like you, you, you cover everybody. So um, I do think uh, the country could elect Bernie Sanders. 
Uh, but the neoliberal elites in the Democratic Party did not want to elect Bernie Sanders and worked very hard to stop him. I don't just blame them. I think that Russiagate actually did a really serious damage to Bernie, and he didn't seize the opportunity of 2016. 2016, where a con man posing as an anti-establishment fighter for the working man won, should have taught Democrats that the way to beat the Republicans is simply present a genuine anti-establishment message as opposed to this con man billionaire who pretends to fight for the working class. And they had that. They have a very genuine alternative. His name is Bernie Sanders, the guy who almost won the Democratic primary in 2016. So the obvious uh, lesson of 2016 was simply to become the party of Bernie. So how did Democrats avoid that? Russiagate. They decided that the reason they lost 2016 was not because of their failed neoliberal legacy, not because of Hillary Clinton's uh, bad campaign of ignoring Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, but because of Russia and because of a secret conspiracy with Russia. And the answer was that all we have to do was investigate this and get Robert Mueller on the case and everything will be solved. And Bernie Sanders, instead of pointing out the flaws with that, uh, went along with it. And what was the result? We had a party that had bigger rallies to save Jeff Sessions' job than it did to save the Iran nuclear deal when Trump attacked it, or even to save healthcare. I swear to God, go back and look at who, who came out to save the Affordable Care Act in the streets versus who came out to save Jeff Sessions' job, and you'll find the rallies for Jeff Sessions' job were bigger by liberals. And that to me speaks to the scandal that Russiagate was and how Bernie Sanders got undermined, um, unfortunately, partly with his own with his own approval because he went along with Russiagate and didn't push back on it. Well, you know, I, I agree with almost every, I think everything that you just said. Uh, one thing um, uh, that was really shocking was, I guess not really shocking, disturbing was Joe Biden's uh, acceptance speech where at, Close to the end, he talked about Russia, Russia interference, and Russia uh, imperialism or its uh, creeping, uh, you know, imperialism. Uh, wh who was that for? Was that for the Lincoln Project? Was that for the uh, defense industry? Was it for uh, close associates of? I why? Why we can't? We can't, the world can't afford a war with Russia. The planet can't afford a war with Russia. What, what was that all about? We can't afford it, but who benefits from it are weapons manufacturers and think tanks in Washington that are funded by the weapons manufacturers to, just, to justify uh, fear of a Russian military threat. And why do they keep pursuing it? It's because I think that they, I mean, there are many reasons. I mean, one, it's, it's profitable for the military industrial complex to have, te to have tensions with Russia. A lot of money is spent on weapons. That's why, for example, whenever Congress debates uh, uh, measures that would expand NATO to admit, new, to admit new members to NATO, there's a flood of lobbying from the weapons industry. They spend a lot of money on those votes because those votes are worth a lot of money to the weapons industry. You know. Why does it serve anyone's security to have Montenegro and NATO 
or why does it serve anyone's security to expand NATO to Russia's borders? It doesn't. It makes the world far more dangerous. But it's very profitable for the weapons manufacturers who can then use the threat of war to sell weapons, sell javelins to Ukraine, and get U.S. taxpayers to subsidize it. So it's a racket. And that's who comes from, that's who Biden, you know, um, represents. That's his cadre. That's his circle. And it also just promotes this, like, this false notion of American exceptionalism, in which people derive pleasure and satisfaction and meaning, I think, for themselves personally, in this idea that uh, America is this great empire that deserves to be policing the world and deserves to be uh, telling other countries what to do. So it's like, a, that, that's just the culture that they've bought into. So that's who I think Biden does that for. And also I think they do that because they don't have anything else. When you don't have policies that can really appeal to people, people and meet their needs, you have to find other ways to control them and to get them to vote for you. So one way to do that is fear mongering. You know, this is a very old playbook. So one way Democrats, the neoliberal wing of the party state power is fear mongering. So, you know, let's not talk about having Medicare for all like Bernie wants to. Let's instead talk about keeping ourselves safe from this Russian threat. It's a very old method. And that's that's where Biden's coming from. Well, you know, Biden uh, supported Plan Columbia. I think he was at the uh, at the forefront, at the vanguard of, of the back in 2000. I saw him in many interviews back in the early part when he was a senator, uh, 2001, 2002. Uh, he also uh, probably supports Juan Guaido. He does. Uh, he does. And he probably, uh, you know, uh, supports the, the current ruler of Bolivia. Uh, where is he on Iran? And where is he on Cuba? Are you aware? On Iran, his view is really pathetic because here is like such an easy thing for him to do. Trump destroyed probably the Obama administration's top achievement, you know, uh, aside from the Affordable Care Act, which I don't think is much to brag about. It's something, but, it's, but there's a lot of problems with it, obviously. But the Iran nuclear deal was a huge achievement. The entire world was on board. It was working. It was improving life in Iran where people were, you know, the, the sanctions were easing. Iranians were experiencing the benefits of a little bit of having the sanctions lifted, although even Obama himself didn't fully comply with his own deal, but that's another story. But so anyway, Trump has destroyed it. Trump has made it his mission to destroy Obama's signature achievement. So why wouldn't Biden, Trump's opponent, stand unconditionally for rejoining the Iran nuclear deal? Well, Biden is such a hawk, he can't even do that. And he said that he would be willing to rejoin the nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal, um, under certain conditions, you know, that Iran has to meet. Which is just, it shows just how right-wing Biden and the circle are and just how politically uh, uh, blinded they are by their own imperialism. It's, it doesn't make any sense. So, um, and on Cuba, I don't know what Biden has said about that. I suspect it's actually the same thing, although maybe he's a bit more open to it because Cuba um, is, you know, the, the idea, like, basically having, being a hawk on Cuba basically only wins you one vote, and that's in Florida. And Biden might already have written Florida off anyway. So, you know, like, it, it, it doesn't, I'm not sure what Biden has said on that, but, but the fact that he's going along, for example, with Trump's coup attempt in Venezuela and his, his 
attempt to install this puppet Juan Guaido, it, it just, just speaks to how little difference there is on key issues between Democrats and Republicans yeah. on foreign policy. Now, all that said, you know, I have some close colleagues who don't agree with me on this. And by the way, um, just, just since you mentioned it, if people want to read about Biden and Plan Columbia, they should read a great report by my colleague, Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone about how Biden helped push forward Plan Columbia, helped you know, uh, unleash a lot of misery in Honduras and Colombia, and actually has responsibility for the migrant crisis because so many migrants in Central America are fleeing conditions that Biden himself helped bring about. But I, I still think despite all this, you know, despite the fact that I have really nothing positive to say about Joe Biden, I still think he should be elected because I think that the Trump and the people around him are even worse for the world than mm -hmm. Biden is. I, you know, it, it sounds strange to some people, but I do subscribe to the view that the smallest differences between the world's most powerful people can make a huge world of difference for the uh, uh, least powerful. And the fact is the Trump and the people around him are um, sadistic and warmongers in ways that Biden and his people might not be as much. And that certainly under a Biden administration, there's more of a chance of a popular movement getting the administration to do less damage to the world than there is under Trump, in which they don't have to pretend to listen to the left and they just do whatever they want no matter what. And, you know, if Trump is in office, all of the opposition to energy will be in resisting the damage he's doing. Whereas under Biden, there's a possibility of pushing towards some somewhat positive or at least less harmful policies. So, um, and there's many key issues where I just think that it's apparent. For, for example, on nuclear weapons, Trump has pulled out of two critical nuclear arms treaties, uh, the INF Treaty, and now he's, he's, now he's threatening to kill New START. And he also pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. So just on that issue alone, with which nuclear weapons are of existential um, significance to the world in terms of threatening destruction, I think we should elect Joe Biden and defeat Trump. Well, then we stop doing, we, we, we sit at home after he's elected, but I just think that Trump is that much worse. And by the way, the one positive thing I can say about Biden is that he doesn't have the political skills that Obama does to put everybody to sleep. <laughs> when, when Biden speaks, speaks, people might go to sleep because he's so dull, but Obama was brilliant at neutralizing people with his lofty rhetoric and thinking that he was going to do something meaningful and progressive. But really, he was a con man. And he convinced everyone to basically pack it up and go home. Right. Biden doesn't have those skills as a con man. And so I think that the, the grassroots energy we're seeing right now with Black Lives Matter and the progressive energy that Bernie Sanders woke up, I don't think that goes away under Biden. And it possibly can pressure him to do some less harmful, maybe even some positive things. Whereas under Trump, there's no hope of that whatsoever. There's not much to add to that. I, I totally agree. And, and, and you know who agrees with you? Uh, Cornell West, uh, and so does uh, Angela Davis, and so does Noam Chomsky, that there is room to operate uh, with uh, Biden there. I mean, of course, I don't like him at all, uh, but uh, there is some room to operate. I, with people like Stephen Miller, uh, William Barr, uh, Mike Pompeo, 
and Sebastian Gorka and uh, Larry Kudlow and all these nutcases, Steve Mnuchin around him. You know, it's like, all right, this is a, it's a no brainer. There is some room there, but I liken it to uh, the 1988 or 86 election in, uh, in El Salvador, where you had Napoleon Duarte, who was a centrist uh, right uh, Christian Democrat against, I believe, someone that uh, Roberto Dobasan supported, maybe Christiani. Uh, and uh, maybe we are 1932, and this is like, you know, people on the left, some of them supported uh, Hindenburg against Hitler. I mean, it was like Hindenburg was a reactionary. Hindenburg came from the old guard, came from the old school militaristic background, but Hitler was worse. So people got behind him only because the consequences that they were right if Hitler got in. Um, so uh, the Republican convention is, is this week. Uh, what uh, do you foresee? Uh, happening this week, and we'll check back when it's over to see if you were accurate. Well, let me just say, you know, for people, I mean, we can criticize Biden all day. There's nothing really positive to say about him, but just people have to remember what you're saying. The alternative is Donald Trump and Stephen right. Miller and Mike Pompeo. People have to think about that. When you're voting for Biden, you're not voting for Biden, you're voting against Trump. And people have to remember that. It's hard because Biden is so awful and because people are so bitter about what's happened to Bernie, but we have to remember, we're still responsible for the outcome of the election. And as Chomsky says, progressive politics doesn't happen inside the White House. It's not as if, we, if you're voting for Biden, it's because you're expecting him to be progressive. You're just trying to create the best conditions possible in which progressive politics can, can happen. And is that under a far right administration that is uh, pulling out of nuclear treaties, is cutting food stamps, is you know even ramping up the cruelty um, towards undocumented immigrants even more cruel than Obama was, which is pretty cruel. I mean, no. I mean, you want the best conditions possible, possible, for politics to happen. And people have to ask: Is that under a center-right Biden or a far-right Trump? And I think the answer is pretty easy. In terms of the Republican convention, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I. It, what I know is that it's dominated by the Trumps. Trump is speaking every single night. He's getting every single member of his family to speak because so many other Republicans don't want to have anything to do with him. So I uh, expect the, you know, uh, I expect Trump to follow kind of the playbook of George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988 when he uh, dog whistled and he tried to, you know, use the Willie Horton ad to scare people into thinking that, people of color were gonna come terrorize them and rape their daughters unless they voted for him. I, I think, like, what else did Trump have? The one thing I think Trump will also do is I think he will capitalize on the gift that Russiagate offered him, which is that there was wrongdoing by intelligence officials to investigate him. They did try to weaponize the intelligence agencies to bring him down. And I think he will use the revelations that have come out about deceit on the part of intelligence officials. There was recently an indictment of an FBI lawyer. He will use that, and he will actually use that as an excuse to all of his followers uh, in saying, in explaining why he hasn't gotten anything done. Remember, he promised to bring back factories. He was gonna make America great again. And he's gonna say, the reason I couldn't do this is because the deep state was plotting to bring me down and stopping me from making America great again. 
and he will point to accurately acts of deceit by the intelligence agencies, which is, again, another reason why I said all along that Russiagate will ultimately be a gift to Trump, because not only did it distract us from his real wrongdoing and channel the resistance into a conspiracy theory, and not only did it give him the gift of exoneration when the investigation came up empty, eventually when the revelations came out of all the fraud used to start Russiagate and keep it going, that would help Trump too, and it would help give him, give him an excuse. So I think he will capitalize on that. I think he's also going to capitalize on the fact that Joe Biden, his opponent, for all the talk about Trump family corruption, which is very real, Joe Biden's kid got an $80,000 a month board seat on a Ukrainian uh, gas, uh, uh, gas company's board of directors months after Joe Biden's administration helped organize a coup in Ukraine. And I think that that the Trump administration, that the Trump campaign will capitalize on that gift as well. The Democrats have nominated someone. Uh, this, but this, this, this administration is, is indeed one of the most corrupt administrations I've seen in, in, in my lifetime. I, 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 you know, maybe going back to Boss Tweed on a local level in New York City, uh, the uh, raw corruption, it's so rampant. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. They are a, they are a crazy corrupt administration. Um, you know, Trump basically said at the start that he can do anything he wants, and he doesn't have to divest himself of his holdings, and he, and he, and he hasn't. He's profited off of, you know, off of being president, having people stay at his hotels and all that stuff. But look, the point is that Democrats nominated someone who doesn't have really the ground to challenge Trump on corruption. If they had nominated Bernie, what could Trump have said about Bernie? You have a second home, a small little cabin in Vermont. I mean, you know, but with Biden, they have Biden, they have a guy who, again, his unqualified son gets a board seat from a Ukrainian gas company, $80,000 a month. He has no experience at all in the field. He never even goes over to Ukraine. And this is months after Joe Biden's administration, the Obama administration, helped back a coup in Ukraine. There's that famous leaked phone call of, Victoria Newland, the and then who was then a State Department official, saying "fuck the EU," and that they were deciding who the next government of Ukraine was going to be. And after that, Hunter Biden gets his gets his gig. And you know, when Joe Biden was asked about this earlier this year on the Today Show or something, they were like, "Do you think it looks bad that Hunter got this seat?" And you know, don't you think this has to do with the fact that he's your son? And Joe Biden said, "No, it's because he's a very bright guy." So it's just, it's farcical. So it's as farcical as anything Trump can say. So I, I think that on the one issue, on one of the big issues where you can really go after Trump for corruption, Democrats kneecap themselves by nominating Joe Biden. Right. It, uh, for me, it's a double whammy. I wanted Bernie to win. Plus, I, uh, being an impressionist, it was, um, you know, four years of, uh, you know, I would be able to do his voice on television, on radio. I would do it. I would be talking with you right now about Bernie Sanders, but I can't do it. Uh, and uh, he's not going to get it. But he had a very powerful speech the other day at the convention. Uh, and I, I guess, uh, you know, I guess I have to work with conservatives, too. I want this guy to lose. I'm going to hold my nose. I've had five months of practice wearing a mask. And uh, even in New York, I, I think that I'm the last Democrat I voted for in a presidential election has been all independents maybe a communist party one time, Gus Hall. 
and, uh, and Green Party, and that's it, Ralph Nader twice, uh, Jill Stein. Uh, I, may, I may actually vote for a Democrat for the first time since my initial vote in 1972 for George McGovern, and he is no George McGovern, Joe Biden, I can tell you that. Certainly not, no. Anyway, so um, I, I really appreciate uh, giving us all of this time. I was just going to ask you about Russiagate, but um, you know your uh, opinions, your thoughts, your observations are really right on, and uh, they're smart and uh, they're cogent. And uh, I uh, I wish people would uh, go to your uh, Twitter account and and watch a constant flow. You got a good sense of humor. That's why I, I like it. And so does Max have a good sense of humor. Max has a good, really good sense of humor. Blumenthal, the four of you do at that, uh, the four that I know of that I've had on, on this show. Ben Norton has sense of humor and uh, Anya does. But, uh, you know, you could have been a stand-up comic, man. You could have been a satirist. Well, you know, you know I, I, I've dabbled. I've tried stand-up comedy before. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And I was terrible at it. And I realized that, you know, to the, it's so impressive. People who can do it, it is such a, I, I love comedy and it's such a, it's such an incredible skill and it's so hard to, even five minutes. Feels well, like I, was, I was so far to the left all my comedy years. Uh, there were like three places I could work, the Upper, uh, upper West Side, the Lower East Side and Havana. That was it and uh, get an audience to like me. But I used to work in front of the U. U.S. Embassy in Managua during the Contra War at seven o'clock in the morning. I would do a stand-up every Thursday at seven a.m. after getting shit-faced on cheap rum all night long during the war because they couldn't ferment it. And uh, those were great audiences. Uh, so, uh, Aaron Incredible. Mate, uh, you uh, can be reached uh, your website once again. Pushbackshow.com. And the All great right. yeah. Okay, okay, com. All right, Aaron Mate, thanks a lot. Uh, this has been very special. And we'll, we hope to see you uh, back on again during the um, continuation of the Assange. Any last words about Julian Assange before we go? And then we'll, we'll end it. His partner, uh, had uh, Stella Morris, has a campaign right now to fight his extradition attempt. So for anybody who has the means to support it, it's on, you can just search for it, Stella Morris Assange campaign. Uh, and look, Julian Assange has, is one of the most important publishers, media figures of all time in world history, I think. No one has done more to expose US state crimes uh, in recent years and what he's given the world in terms of all the revelations that he's done and all the abuse he's taken and the trauma he's taken, he's, he's really a martyr. And I can't express my support for him enough. And, you know, especially at a time when so many media organizations are throwing him under the bus, really attacking one of their own. Everyone has used his revelations, the, the revelations that have come out from WikiLeaks. But yet, when now he's being persecuted for publishing them, there's either prevailing indifference or there's even contempt for him from big media institutions. So it's up to the rest of us to, to stand up for him and to defend him against the Trump administration attempt to imprison him for life and, and possibly kill him. Do you think Joe Biden will uh, continue the investigation? I think he will because the Democrats have gone so far to the right. They've been enlisted in this 
uh, assault on WikiLeaks. There's no really daylight between them and Mike Pompeo when it comes to attacking Assange. You know, Obama, Obama's Justice Department concluded that they could not prosecute Assange um, when they were looking at the same case that Trump brought. But I think now, given the political climate where Democrats have gone so far to the right and have such contempt for WikiLeaks, you know, at this stage, in the absence of public, public pressure, I wouldn't expect Joe Biden to drop it. It's a real mob mentality out there. Well said. Uh, Aaron Mate, thank you very much. Uh, and we will be seeing you soon. I, I, I doubt if I'm going to be going to London to cover this because you have to, uh, you know, uh, quarantine for 14 days. So, you know, and then they'll postpone it. So who, who knows? And, and, and that's, uh, that's actually uh, very ominous that Joe Biden would continue the, uh, the prosecution of Julian Assange. We, that's what, that's like you said, we got to continue once, if he gets in, is, is fight back uh, against Biden, his neoliberal policies and his uh, neoconservative foreign policy. Thank you very much, Aaron Mate. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks so much. Don't you know that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang all day long they're saying the men working on the chain gang that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang all day long they work so hard till the sun is going down working on the highways and byways and wearing wearing a frown you hear them moaning their lives away Then you hear somebody say That's the sound of the men working on the chain Gang That's the sound of the men working on the chain Gang Can't you hear them saying mm -hmm. I'm going home one of these days I'm going home, see my woman, whom I love. Boy, that was great. Aramante really is uh, quite a special young man. He's like, like 40 or something like that. Uh, and he does great work, and you should follow him and, uh, and the Gray Zone. All of them. They're friends of mine. Anya Parenthill, uh, the great Max Blumenthal, and uh, the other kid that's down in Nicaragua whose name I will bring up in just one, Ben Norton. How could I forget Ben Norton? But I don't do this twice. I only do once because I'm too hot. Uh, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly. And by the way, that was Sam Cooke, um, Changing, as I said when I made the transition. Uh, this is uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 39. Uh, folks, um, look, 39 this year, and we've been operating at a loss. Uh, and not, it's like the, the most cost-effective program out there 
Uh, we've had like uh, incredible guests from Cornell West uh, to John Pilger, Craig Murray, Stefania Marizzi, and all those four I just mentioned from the gray zone and many more, you know. Uh, and we'd like to continue uh, this program, but, um, you know, we definitely need your help. You know, we just got to pay the basic bills around here on this uh, show. Uh, Kelly Lane is in North Carolina. She does editing. Um, and we also had an editor, Jimmy Sunderland, who edited the uh, closing music uh, today. And then, of course, Emily and Sarah Kunzer do the, uh, the website. Margaret Ratner Kunzer helps me uh, with the description. There's a lot of uh, little, you know, just like, Little things. So go to Assange Countdown to Freedom, dispel it out.com, and there is over there, right upper right hand side, it said support. Small donations are welcome. Uh, that will just about do it. I want to thank uh, Kelly and I want to thank everybody else I just mentioned. And I want to thank my special guest, Aaron Mate, uh, for taking the time out today. We are closing here. Uh, with uh, Manny Maripol's, uh, he wrote this song, Hanging Fruit, and it, this, this was actually edited by Jimmy Sunderland uh, with Kelly uh, Lane uh, a few months back after George uh, Floyd was killed, murdered, assassinated, whatever. Um, and uh, at that point, we took a bunch of uh, different individuals who uh, were victims of police abuse, police murder, and uh, who died uh, and put them with the backdrop the music of uh, Manny Maripol who wrote the song uh, Strange Fruit and uh, the rendition here is by the late great Billy Holiday and uh, we'll see you soon enjoy the Republican National Convention see you next time folks with what has happened the last two centuries uh, African Americans gunned down by law enforcement, enslaved, uh, put to work, uh, convict leasing, put in jail for the drug war. But in the last week, it's really heated up and it's got to stop. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves. And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees Twisted mouth Scent of magnolia Sweet and fresh Then the sudden smell 
of burning flesh Here's a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck Bitter 